I've got a huge list of topics to be covered in this podcast, but nowhere on that list does it say, must do an episode about phones. And yet, telephones seem to pop up all the time when we read about planning for nuclear war. So I decided it was time to stop ignoring the phone. But don't worry, this isn't going to be a technical episode about exchanges and wires and connections. I have no interest in that side of things. But if you are into the technical side of phones and nuclear war, then check out the very detailed website ringbell.co.uk. But now, let's forget technical stuff and start telling some stories about telephones and nuclear war. We'll start back in the 1930s, before the nuclear bomb had been invented. How soundly we must have slept back then. This is The Atomic Hobo, and I'm Julie McDowell. Living in critical times. The time was when time outside Greenwich Observatory was very elastic, especially closing time. But today there's no excuse for not knowing the right time. You just dial T I M. Tim. It will In 1936, the speaking clock, also known as Tim, was created. Already it feels like a very quaint, old fashioned thing. So let me explain what that was, in case any younger listeners are wondering. The post office used to be in charge of telephones in Britain, and they launched Tim, the speaking clock, where you could phone up and be given the precise time. Back in the 30s, of course, we were reliant on clocks and watches which had to be manually wound up. So it was quite easy to glance at the time and realise your clock had stopped because you'd forgotten to wind it. So you needed to know what time it was. You couldn't just reach into your pocket and pull out the smartphone. So the easiest way to get the precise time was to phone the operator and ask the nice ladies there to confirm what time it was. Now this was happening so often, it was becoming a bit of a nuisance and was taking up the operator's time. So the speaking clock was created. It was a dedicated phone number which just told you via a recorded voice what the current time was. Over the years, the voice of the speaking clock has changed, with the post office, or BT in later years, launching competitions to find a new voice from amongst their staff. The winner would be the so-called golden voice, and the person chosen would actually receive a strange kind of fame and recognition In the 1980s, the speaking clock would receive approximately 300 million calls a year. That's our bomba snoring in the background. And the owner of the Golden Voice would even receive fan mail and proposals of marriage. However, the carefully chosen Golden Voice would often be temporarily supplanted by celebrity voices for various charity events. And so we've had... Sir Ian McKellen, Lenny Henry, Joe Brand and Gary Barlow take over to tell us what time it is. 
So, what does this have to do with nuclear war? Well, without getting bogged down in dull technical details, Britain would deliver its infamous four-minute warning, its nuclear siren, via the telephone system. And to do that, you'd need a telephone network which went across the country, could reach every corner. And so they decided to use the speaking clock network, as that was the only telephone line which went into every exchange in the country. So the speaking clock spent all day, every day, reading out the time. But if it was needed, the government could take it over and use it to issue the four-minute warning. Another benefit to using the speaking clock system, rather than setting up a whole new one specifically for nuclear warnings, was that the system was constantly in use. And so, it was constantly being tested. There was no need to cross your fingers and hope it would work on the day. There was no need to send engineers out to conduct secret tests. You could just let it run and play and do its thing as the speaking clock. And if something went wrong with it, you'd find out very quickly via complaints from unhappy callers. So there, your system is ready-made for you. It's nationwide, it reaches every exchange... And it's constantly being tested and nicely maintained. Check my previous episode called Attack Warning Red if you want more detail on how the four-minute warning would have been delivered and on how Britain's nuclear sirens worked. Now, it's okay to have Britain's air raid sirens triggered by a publicly owned telephone network. But in the 1980s, shock horror, telephones were privatised and the post office gave way to British Telecom. And so, in 1989, Douglas Hurd, the Home Secretary, was forced to reassure journalists that Britain could still deliver its four-minute warning if nuclear war broke out. The inclusion of BT caused another annoyance. Being a private company in charge of the speaking clock, they now permitted corporate sponsorship of the service. And so the message was now delivered to you with a mention of accurists, the watchmakers. At the third stroke, the time sponsored by Accurist will be 10, 22 and 40 seconds. The Guardian mocked this in 1987, saying, quote, The speaking clock has been handed over to advertising interests and inserts the brand name of a watch every 10 seconds. Come the day, I would prefer not to be on standby at the receiver and be told that the bomb comes courtesy of Accurist. Now, having the infamous four-minute warning system connected to a telephone line which is constantly in use by the public, that couldn't cause any problems, could it? Well, in February 1984, a policeman from Coventry used the special handset, which would be used to trigger the four-minute warning, to innocently dial 123 and find out what time it was. And yes, he accidentally triggered the air raid sirens. He set off every siren in Coventry, Warwick and Nuneaton. His local MP raised this in the House of Commons with, again, Douglas Hurd, the Home Secretary, to try and argue that civil defence was futile because he claimed that only 100 people were woken by the sirens. Doesn't this prove there is no defence against nuclear war, he said? Douglas Hurd gave the chilly response... (laughs) 
I do not think his conclusions come from his premise. Now, it is hard to believe that only 100 people would be awoken by the screaming of the air raid siren. Indeed, an angry Coventry resident wrote into the Guardian letters page, furious about the terrible scare this false nuclear alarm had given him. He said it happened at 6.30am and went on for 40 agonising seconds. Contrary to what the MP said in the House of Commons, our correspondent wrote that, quote, it filled tens of thousands of people with intense dread and was, quote, an unforgivable nuclear alarm scare which put the people of Coventry through 30 or 40 seconds of Jim, sheer hell. And 40 So there's plenty of scope for chaos if one copper makes a mistake when dialing the speaking clock. But imagine the chaos if loads of them dialed it all at once. It would overload the network, wouldn't it? You wouldn't be able to get through. Think how hard it is even now with our advanced technology to send a text at the stroke of midnight in New Year when everyone else is trying. The system gets overloaded and your text takes a long time to get through. Well, that was also a problem for the telephone system in nuclear war planning. The government needed to make sure that, in a state of emergency, when war was drawing near, that us panicked hordes weren't all trying to make last-minute calls to relatives, to say goodbye or to beg for help. They had to find a way of keeping us all off the phone, leaving the line clear for the big important people. And so we had the telephone preference system. This was built into the British phone network and it meant that every single time a new user gets a phone, they're given a status. They're secretly given a category, either one, two or three. This applies whether you're the Prime Minister having a new phone installed or whether you're a nice little old lady of no particular importance. Everyone has a category 1, 2 or 3. A tiny handful are category 1 and that means their phone can never be disconnected. Category 2 covers about 10% of lines and these will be cut off in war but not in peacetime emergencies. The rest of us ordinary folk, we're all category 3 and that means our lines will be cut off if nuclear war is drawing near, or any other tremendous emergency, our lines will be cut off, leaving them clear for essential and VIP use. Now that's a practical matter to make sure that communications at the high level can still occur, but arguably it's also a means of controlling a panicked population, a means of halting the spread of rumour and disabling our capacity to organise and protest. Duncan Campbell, in his brilliant book, War Plan UK, says, quote, The government's ability to disable most of the telephone system at the throw of a few switches is obviously a potent weapon. When the telephone preference system is enacted, all Category 3 phones will be dead, 
although they will still be able to receive calls from anyone who is still Category 1 or 2 and is still connected. But when an ordinary Category 3 person, that's you or I, lifts up their phone, there'll be nothing. They'll just think, the phone's dead. However, there is a sinister little aspect to this. Again, Duncan Campbell points it out in his book. He says that if you are a Category 3, if you're just an ordinary person in your ordinary home, and you find when you lift your handset that you're still connected, even though everyone else in the country has been cut off. It doesn't mean, well, hey, you can still make calls. It's actually bad news, as it probably means that your premises, your home, has been earmarked for use by the government. It means you've secretly been awarded Category 1 status. And that means someone high up has their eye on your home and they want to put it to some use in this nuclear emergency. And that can't be good news for you. Now we're going to look at America and its use of telephones in nuclear war. But before we leave Britain, let's look at possibly the most British nuclear war story ever. It concerns Harold Macmillan and a handful of change. Back in the early 1960s, Of course, Whitehall planners were worried about a surprise Soviet nuclear attack. The dreaded bolt from the blue, as it was called. And they worried, how can our Prime Minister be on hand constantly to give nuclear retaliation orders? This isn't the modern day, remember. Harold Macmillan wouldn't be out and about with his smartphone, constantly connected to Downing Street. If and when the Prime Minister was travelling around in his car, he's going to be out of contact. If he's travelling through the countryside in his prime ministerial car and the Russians decide to strike, there is no way for Downing Street to get in touch with the prime minister, certainly not within a few minutes, to ask, what do we do? What's our response? Do we retaliate? How does the prime minister order nuclear retaliation in those moments when he's out of reach, when he's in his car travelling from place to place? He can't constantly be at his desk with his hand poised at the telephone. So one solution was to do what the AA do. Their mechanics, of course, when they're out on the road, were equipped with radios, so they could constantly be in touch with their base, find out where any car breakdowns were, and they could get to them. They all had little radios with them, so why couldn't we fit the Prime Minister's car with similar radios and use the same system? That way, if Harold Macmillan is coasting through the countryside in his car and the Russians launch a nuclear strike, then we can radio the Prime Minister's driver and say, get him to a phone box. He will then zoom Harold Macmillan to the nearest phone box where he can ring number 10 and give his orders. Ah, but wait, another civil servant had a problem with that. What happens if you rush Harold Macmillan to the nearest phone box with a few minutes to spare before the Soviet missiles hit only to find he has no change for the phone? The solution to that problem was we'll make sure that the Prime Minister's chauffeur always has four pennies in the car. Make sure the Prime Minister's car always has four pennies in the glove box. But then there was a solution to that problem as well. There's no need to constantly have loose chains rattling around so that Britain might order a nuclear strike. Instead, 
just take the Prime Minister to the phone box where he can dial the operator, ask for Downing Street and ask them to reverse the charges. As the civil servant wrote, a shortage of pennies should not present the, quite the difficulties which you envisage. It's okay, everyone. Four pennies will not interrupt the four-minute warning. Harold Macmillan can simply ask the operator to reverse the charges. So now let's look at America. My source for this part of the podcast is the excellent book Raven Rock by Garrett Graff. It's about how the American government planned to hunker down and try to survive nuclear war. I highly recommend it. And indeed, Garrett has a book coming out next month called The Only Plane in the Sky, which is the first oral history of 9-11. I'm lucky enough to have been given a review copy of that. Um, I've not yet started it. I need to set time aside to read that. It's going to be quite heavy going, I think. Quite a difficult read. But for now, let's look at Garrett's previous book, Raven Rock, and what role telephones played in America's preparation for nuclear war. He mentions the telephone company AT&T, and he stresses that they were crucial to America's plans to survive nuclear war. They were so important, in fact, that important um, workers for the government, those who might consider themselves VIPs, might have been quite miffed to discover that when it came to evacuation lists, who's going to be rushed out of Washington, who's going to have a place in the bunkers, etc. These fancy VIPs might have been quite miffed to find that they came far down the list below some tech guys from AT&T because they were absolutely essential to, of course, maintaining and repairing the telephone network and the communications network after a nuclear strike. So it doesn't matter how fancy your title is or who you hobnob with in Washington. The fact is, you're not as important as the guys with the know-how from the phone company. AT&T were so important to America's plans to survive nuclear war that when they had a new slogan in the 50s, it stressed secretly and covertly, it stressed that importance. Raven Rock says, quote... When the company adopted a new slogan in the 1950s, communications is the foundation of democracy, the words were more true than the public ever knew. The involvement of the telephone company also gave America's network of nuclear bunkers a corporate cover to hide behind. Because AT&T, of course, had good reason to be building underground facilities in weird, out-of-the-way places. A lot of Britain's nuclear bunkers um, were built beneath what looked like little farmhouses. So they were supposed to look like perfectly ordinary houses and no one had any idea of the massive bunker that was beneath them. The idea was, of course, don't draw attention to this place. So if people thought, what on earth is going on over there? What are the the government building there? What's all that about? They would see, oh, it's just a phone company thing. Oh, it's just AT&T. All right, okay. No need to poke our noses in there. But the phone company didn't just service and maintain communications at government bunkers. They also had bunkers for themselves, for their own equipment, to make sure the company itself could survive nuclear war. Bunkers built to house and protect a lot of their equipment. 
And Raven Rock tells us that some of these bunkers were built on top of huge coils of spring so that the bunker, if it was subject to a blast wave from a nearby nuclear detonation, of course it wouldn't survive a direct hit, nothing would, but if there was a nearby detonation which sent a shockwave through the building, the fact that it sat on these huge springs meant it could sway and gently bounce, I suppose, and absorb some of the shockwave. The book says the buildings themselves could shift six inches without cracking. The whole installation could roll with an atomic punch. And the building itself, or the bunker itself, didn't just sit on springs. There were also springs inside to cushion the very delicate equipment. Uh, Communications equipment and lights hung from springs and the toilets sat on springs. So everything might gently rock and bounce when the nuclear war starts as long as you're not directly underneath the thing as for the phones themselves down in those government bunkers Raven Rock tells us of a special golden phone that was the one which the general in charge of strategic air command would use to communicate with the president if nuclear war ever came we learn that General Thomas Power who took over in 1957 from the legendary Curtis LeMay, was dependent on two phones which sat on his desk. One was the golden phone, with which he would talk to the president, and the other was a red phone, with which he'd communicate with everyone else below him. Without those phones, he'd say, all I command is my desk, and that is not a very lethal weapon. So the golden telephone put him through to the Pentagon and the president, And we learn that General Power's movements were carefully coordinated so that wherever he went, night or day, he would always be able to answer that gold telephone within six rings. Of course, if that phone ever rang, it would be the President calling to authorise nuclear launch. Power would then put down the gold telephone, knowing his orders, pick up the red telephone and pass those orders on to everyone else. But when it comes to a famous telephone, a famous red telephone in nuclear war planning, we of course all think of the famous hotline. That was a hotline set up after the Cuban Missile Crisis to make sure that America and the Soviet Union could always quickly and easily communicate. Again, quoting from Raven Rock, after Cuba, the question was asked, must a world be lost for want of a telephone call? And so technicians got onto the topic of how do we make sure that the presidents of both are always easily linked up in any nuclear crisis? And so the famous hotline, or the red telephone, was set up. But despite our popular perception of it, The hotline wasn't actually a red telephone. It wasn't even a telephone. It was a teletype machine. There was one in the Kremlin and one in the Pentagon and they could send text messages to one another because it was decided that that was safer than relying on a phone call. In a phone call, a voice can of course be shaky, rushed, misinterpreted, It can give away panic or strain or confusion. But if you're sending messages that are in text, 
at least the message will always be stark and obvious and clear. That was why they didn't opt for a telephone. In a time of severe stress, such as the Cuban Missile Crisis, let's not rely on something as wavering and as subject to misinterpretation as the human voice. Instead, put it in writing. The teletype machines would send messages back and forth in both English and in Russian. The first message, which was sent as a test from the American side, read, The quick brown fox jumped over the lazy dog's back. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, zero. That, of course, utilised all the characters. The Russians sent something back in Cyrillic. That was the first test. And Raven Rock tells us the system was tested every single day since, with messages sent between Moscow and Washington. These test messages weren't of any particular significance. Often they would be snippets of poetry or even local sports results. And twice a year, on New Year and on August the 30th, the system's anniversary, formal greetings would be sent between Moscow and Washington. So there, that's the infamous hotline set up after Cuba, which we all assume is a red telephone, but is actually neither. It's a teletype machine. But as long as it helps prevent nuclear war, who cares what it is? Well, who knew phones could be so interesting? I've enjoyed recording this episode, especially having the chance to muck about with old ringtone sound effects. If you enjoy my podcast, please consider supporting it through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash Atomic Hobo, where you can sign up for various nuclear-themed rewards, including a free signed copy of my book and having your name printed in the acknowledgement section as a supporter of my nuclear work. If you want to contact me about the podcast or have any questions about the end of civilization, get me on Twitter at Julie A. McDowell, on my website juliemcdowell.com or my Facebook page which is called Nuclear Britain. Before I go, let me thank all my patrons and with a special shout out to Paul Jonathan Viner, Everybody, Hack Green, Secret Nuclear Bunker, Dan Breen, Gary Watson, Arika, Lucy Steigerwald, Ben Taylor, Jonathan Abelins, Simon Robinson, Heather Parker, Peter Mars, Bruce Fraser Armstrong, John Haynes, Tom Stickland, Yannick, Sam Marco, Dave Marks, Alan Christie, Helen McHale, Douglas Greenshields, Colin McGee, Sean Milson, Brian Outlaw, Damien Ryan, Peter Lee, Ed Freshwater, Rosie Jameson, Andrew Key, Ian Ilkin, Lorraine Gluick, Eamon Coyle, Julie Eek, Sarah Brassington, Nick Packham, Tara Moore, Simon Reed, Lynette Walsh, Christopher Creva, Richard Lewis, Adam Spink, Ian McCulloch, Linda Wilnuff, Kevin Butcher, Simon Allison, Sean Judge, Paul Maxwell Walters, Wynne Grant, Ben Capper, Mary Freer, Phil Catling, Steve Sace, Claire Brennan and Gordy McNair. <laughs>